Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Critics complain about Governor Baker's handling of the COVID-19 crisis, but the Biden administration gives him high marks. Boston's mayor's race, the most diverse field ever, guarantees the city's first non-white mayor. And Republican governors slash unemployment benefits, saying forcing people off the rolls will combat a labor shortage. We're spending the full hour with the mass politics profs. Joining me remotely, Aaron O'Brien, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hi, Aaron. Hello, hello. Rob DeLeo, Associate Professor of Public Policy at Bentley University. Hello, Rob. Hey there. And Peter Upataccio, Dean of the Thomas and Donna May School of Arts and Sciences and Associate Professor of Political Science at Stonehill College. Welcome back, Peter. Hi, Callie. All three are contributors to the Mass Politics Profs blog. So let's start uh, with uh, Governor Baker and many, many comments about the role he's paid and the job he's done in handling the COVID crisis. As you all know, the there was a poll in March that gave him very high marks. Seventy-one percent of people said they approved of his handling of the pandemic. Not as many, 58 percent, for the vaccine rollout, which has been a little rocky. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, nationally, he uh, has caught the eye of the Biden administration. Here's Governor Charlie Baker in a conference call with President Joe Biden last Tuesday, during which Baker told Biden he appreciated working with his administration. We're going to work really hard to make sure we get everybody who wants a vaccine vaccinated by the 4th of July. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you. Doing a hell of a job. So that's the pat on the back from the president. And his ratings remain high. Some people say that's going to keep anybody that wants to run against him in the near future out of the race, perhaps. What do you all say about first his handling of the pandemic and now the rollout and um, the future? Peter Ubatachio, you go first. Sure. I think that if he is able to achieve the vaccination rates that he wants by the 4th of July, some of the missteps with the initial rollout will, will be forgotten. Uh, as people start celebrating uh, holidays again with with loved ones and families, assuming that the unemployment rate comes down and the economy rebounds, you know, I think that the future continues to look bright for Charlie Baker. And if you're a Republican governor of Massachusetts facing potentially a, a tough reelection race, there's there's nothing better for you than a vote of confidence from a popular Democratic president in the White House. So, you know, I, I think that there are some areas of concern with the initial rollout. I'm just not sure that they are going to stick to Charlie Baker moving forward. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I, I would echo that. And, you know, there's a pretty robust political science literature that suggests voters tend to be really quite myopic, especially when it comes to recovering from a disaster. So in the immediate 
aftermath of a of an event, uh, an incumbent candidate may see a modest dip in their favorability. However, if they're able to help a community recover from that disaster, they often see their vote share increase relative to pre-disaster levels, so they become more popular. And I can't help but wonder if this dynamic uh, is going to play out with respect to COVID for Charlie Baker. Surely there were some missteps early on, but as Peter astutely noted, if we return to some semblance of normalcy over the summer, if things start to reopen, if people start to get out a little more, they may come to have a positive association with his handling of the pandemic simply because by the time they go to vote, uh, life has improved for them. Erin? Hmm. You know, I'm befuddled. <laughs> Charlie Baker befuddles me a little bit in the sense I really anticipated from a policy feedback standpoint, there is nothing more intimate and proximate and directly impactful on your life as to whether or not you were able to get that vaccine. And so the rollout was so bad in Massachusetts and comparatively bad that I anticipated Baker's numbers would maybe eventually rebound, but I thought he'd pay longer for those missteps. And I was wrong. Uh, uh, you know, I think Rob's right that voters are fairly forgiving in something as calamitous as uh, COVID, that they understand that politicians are, are working hard and going to make some missteps. And I think Charlie Baker has benefited from that. A lot of candidates maybe smelled blood in the water and they were wrong, as was I. Well, let me follow up with that. And uh, all of you can uh, take a bite at this apple. And that is, so I agree with perhaps there will be a forgetting of the pain when it's time to vote. However, does it matter that if one of the the big failings was quite particular in this instance, he was pushed, he was pushed, he was pushed. And until he was really pushed to target those communities that were very much suffering, um, that's where the vaccine needed to go. That's where the testing needed to go first. And, you know, that was not his plan. He was like, let's make all the boats rise and then everybody will get in it. And that took a lot. Uh, I don't can't imagine those communities forgetting. But the polling shows that Blacks and Hispanics are actually more favorable towards Charlie Baker and his handling of all this than whites and Asians. So uh, my hypothesis was similar to yours, Callie, but uh, the data doesn't suggest that's what's being borne out. Peter, do you see any difference? You, you agree? I do. I agree with my colleagues. Uh, I would say that Charlie Baker has also benefited from another dynamic. He benefited when there was an incompetent uh, xenophobe in the White House. And he also benefited in comparison to the hubris of the, the governor of New York. And he, he has developed a reputation. I think we can debate whether that reputation is fully deserved as, as an excellent manager and uh, trying to approach complex policy issues from a, a fairly nonpartisan perspective. Um, and so I think having developed that reputation in comparison with others, he looks pretty good. And as, as Aaron points out, to your point, Callie, I do think there will be continued repercussions uh, regarding the rollout, but I'm not sure one of them will be a negative impact on his reelection chances, even in those communities where it was really fairly rocky. Hmm. Rob? Yeah, and there's, uh, I'll add a third dynamic uh, that he benefited from, and that is there is survey data suggesting that the people of Massachusetts 
throughout this process were just very compliant with a lot of government initiatives around the pandemic, whether it was social distancing or mask wearing. You know, this was a state where he didn't have to run up against large cohorts of people that more or less weren't on board with some of those interventions. So all in all, I think having an electorate that really saw this as an important issue and an issue that they personally should take seriously uh, will certainly help him when he runs for re-election. Do you think, and this is the last question on Charlie Baker and the COVID-19 and the politics of it, that um, he also benefited by not really mandating. I mean, he was he would be long in the process before he said, okay, now, as of this moment, you better not go somewhere and not wear a mask. But he advised, he counseled, he urged, he talked about the science. But unlike some other people who said, this is a mandate right now, and I don't want to hear it, stop it right now, this behavior, that's not what he did. And some people are suggesting that if there's any appeal for some more conservative people in the states, that will allow him to appeal to them. What say you, Aaron? I think to Rob's point, if you have a willing electorate, then you can do the soft push. I think the governors who had to do the mandates are governors who are in states that had, you know, militias in their state house, thinking of Michigan. So I think it was uh, Charlie Baker, that soft touch was probably right for Massachusetts. But I don't think we can generalize to every other governor because their electorates are different. I'm from Ohio and DeWine is offering uh, five one million dollar lotteries for getting shots in Massachusetts. Like uh, I giggled when I read this, which means I'm no longer an Ohioan, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? But but it does speak to governors have to meet the electorate that they have, and I think Charlie Baker was adept with those soft pushes um, in that way. All righty. Well, let's move on to uh, another topic, which is going to consume, I believe, a lot of us uh, in the coming months, and that's the the diverse, very diverse uh, field of candidates for the Boston mayor's race. First, let's take a listen to the candidates declaring their interests uh, in uh, being the next Boston mayor. My name's John Barrows, and I'm running for mayor of the city of Boston. My name is Andrea Campbell. I was born and raised in Boston. My name is Anissa Rasivy George, and I am running for mayor of Boston. I'm Kim Janey, and I'm the 55th mayor of the city of Boston. My name is John Santiago. I'm running for mayor to lead Boston through this crisis. I'm Michelle Wu, and I'm running for mayor to make Boston a city for everyone. Well, what do y'all say? Um, is this going to get more competitive, or does Kim Janey, as acting mayor, really have so much of a lead that it, she can't be overcome? Um, I'll start with you, Peter. So uh, I, I don't think that the mayor has such an overwhelming lead that, that it can't be overcome, in, in part because um, there, you know, she, she's been mayor for, for a relatively short period of time, and she's got some pretty significant, well-funded uh, challengers. Uh, so I, I would say at this point, the race is fluid. Now, now she's, she's the mayor, and, and she won't need to raise or spend quite as much as some of her other challengers, in part because of of the title and the fact that you know she can make news and be the center of attention anytime she wants, just by holding a news conference uh, or issuing a statement. So she has an advantage over 
the other candidates uh, in in this regard. I just don't think it's overwhelming at this point. But what I what I also want to say, just given given the the intro that you had there, I mean, it is it, for for this has been long a long time building, but this is the race that will probably end the identity of Boston uh, with uh, you know Irish uh, Catholic <laughs> uh, 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 men. Uh, to lead the city, and that 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 image has been fixed in time for for generations, and uh, it, it, overnight that image will be erased as a result of this. That's pretty dramatic, um, Rob. Yeah, I I think it's way too soon to say that you know Mayor Janey um, has this one in the bag. You know, one thing that's clear is that, you know, the majority of these candidates have a real name recognition issue that they're going to have to address. Uh, close to 35% of Boston vo voters haven't heard uh, of Mayor Janey in a recent poll. 57% uh, haven't heard of Rep Santiago. So I think step one is, is figuring out who who can start to build that name recognition? Obviously, Mayor Janey has um, an, an advantage there by virtue of the fact that she's the, the, the mayor and she's been out there a lot. But even some of the people who got in the race early, like a, a, a Michelle Wu, for example, um, have greater name recognition at, at the moment than, than Mayor Janey. So figuring out who, who, who starts to build that recognition, I think, is going to be step one before we can start to parse out who's going to run away with this. Aaron, I'm excited. Like a lot of people in Boston, th this race is exciting. Uh, I, I love talking about it in part because there's no playbook to look at. Um, I generally think political consultants are overpaid. The consultants are earning their dollars on this race. 46% um, of Bostonians are undecided. So this is truly anyone's game. The top three candidates, Wu and Campbell, who have been in the longest, have the most money, unsurprisingly. But um, uh, the acting mayor and uh, Asabi George have really been able to fundraise. So you've got quality candidates that are well-funded, any of whom would be uh, a historic uh, choice for Boston. So uh, like Peter said, I don't know if it'll go as far to change our reputation, but it'll certainly be some evidence to suggest Boston is changing and is changing in um, a positive direction. And I think one thing that I think about this race the most uh, for evidence of that changing Boston is that, you know, some white Irish guy uh, hasn't gotten in or some white Italian guy hasn't gotten in. Uh, if this race was going on even four years ago, I think candidates like the Nick Collins, the state senator um, um, from Saudi and Dorchester, uh, would have flirted with this race. But we're in a particular moment where that's a bad look, and that's never been the case in Boston. So I think the absence of some of those candidates who would have assumed it to be their, they're the heir apparent, that is also evidence of a changing Boston, in my mind, changing in the right direction. So the Globe did a really interesting piece asking the question, where does Marty Walsh's base go? Um, and so uh, to your point, Aaron, the race uh, and, the, and the candidates in the race look completely different. It's, it's uh, as, as uh, Peter has said, it's a little startling to realize that, you know, all of that tradition has gone by the wayside and likely will never return. Um, but there's a lot of power in the base that Marty Walsh had built. Um, and that's the traditional base. So where does his base go? 
everywhere. Anybody, <laughs> okay, so no, no one, no one candidate. You don't think? Not yet. I mean, mm-hmm. he seems to be hit a lot of his. But it, I was going to say a lot of the people who worked for him have gone with John Barrows. But then I thought of a couple of exceptions immediately. So I think, and I think that a lot, a lot of that has to do with all of these candidates are progressive Democrats. And so, you know, the the Walsh base was obviously a union base, but um, there were slight differences and slight changes or or changes is the wrong words, um, slightly different policy preferences amongst the Walsh base. And now there's five or six candidates that can speak to those slight differences. So uh, uh, the answer there, at least to my mind, my colleagues uh, might have a different take, is that there isn't an heir apparent. And Marty Walsh has been very clear he's not going to endorse. What, uh, Rob, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, we're already seeing, you know, these endorsements going to all sorts of different candidates. We have uh, uh, Teamsters Local 25 went to Wu, Dorchester Local 223 went to Santiago. And so I think that really what it's going to come down to is that a lot of these organizations are just going to eventually pick the candidate that they think has the best chance of winning and most closely dovetails their agenda and they're you're going to have to hang their hat on that. I, I would add though, and I think this is another important point that echoes the uh, Baker dynamic, you know, the cor- handling of the coronavirus remains the top issue uh, among Boston residents. And so Mayor Janey is going to, although she's only been in power for a short time, she's really going to govern during this this what we think will be a, an important transition period over the summer. And so that's an opportunity, I think, for her to really differentiate herself from the others, begin to develop um, uh, some positive relationships with some of these interests and perhaps uh, build her favorability among the electorate. Um, she's already cons- indicated this week, for example, that she is considering uh, expediting the city's parts of the city's reopening uh, process after she got a little heat um, from Rep Santiago for for saying that she was going to have a three week lag relative to the state. So I think that dynamic uh, could could will play out over the summer and could have an important impact on the race. Well, if you use that criteria, don't you think uh, Rep Santiago is you know, right there on the front lines. I mean, he's got a story to tell with regard to, you know, where he was uh, during the COVID pandemic. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of room for everybody, I guess. Peter, what's your take? I, I agree with my colleagues, uh, which comes as no surprise. Uh, I think that Marty Walsh's base of support will fracture among this crowded and very talented field of candidates. I actually think that's a good thing that there is not an error apparent. I think that that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such a diverse collection of talent in this race. But I also agree with Rob, you know, it's hard to unseat an incumbent mayor. And though I think, you know, again, because she's only served for a short period of time and it's a crowded field, right? I still think it's it's fairly fluid. But the, the recent decision to open up a bit earlier, even if it's in response to Rep Santiago, you know, mayors have the ability to impact those kinds of policies in a way that a state rep doesn't. And uh, what she will do, which is what any good politician will do, is simply take full credit (laughs) for the decision to reopen. And every time a restaurant opens on a village in Boston, she's going to be there uh, cutting a ribbon, opening them up, 
attracting a lot of media <laughs> attention. And uh, that's true. Uh, yeah. and, and when the way those press conferences work, mayors speak first, state representatives not so much. So I think that she's going to have you know an edge going into this. Is assuming that the the rollout is successful, uh, that the opening up continues. And that it's a pretty healthy summer for businesses in Boston. I think she's going to gain a lot of support as a result. Mm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are three of the mass politics profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Rob DeLeo of Bentley University, and Peter Ubertaccio of Stonehill College. We're discussing local political news at the moment, uh, particularly the mayor's race. But, um, Peter, there's a twist, potentially, that's connected to the mayor's race. There have been more than one suggestion that in order to win, a Black candidate needs to be selected to be the one representative of all of the Black candidates as opposed to the several that are in there now as the best chance of not splitting the vote in that community. And further, there's an interesting proposal from local developer and former Transportation Secretary in Bill Wells' office, Robert Taylor, to do kind of a moving of some powerful chess pieces to suggest that Kim Janey keep the job. This is if, you know, he can move the chess pieces. Um, Andrea Campbell move into Rachel Rollins' job because it's assumed that Rachel Rollins has the best chance to leave her post at uh, Suffolk County DA and become the U.S. attorney. So, Peter, what do you think about it? Well, I don't think highly of the argument, to be perfectly honest. And, you know, I think that it stems from an earlier time in, in our history where ethnic voting blocks were uh, pretty strong uh, and candidates and constituencies may have viewed themselves through that particular lens. I think I think it's, it's healthier for us to step away from that. Uh, and I also think that it, it demonstrates that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And uh, Bostonians and Massachusetts politicos in particular are fond of, of trying to control that chessboard and trying to peer into the future to get the desired outcomes that they want. And so they, they're thinking, you know, well, if we do these three steps, uh, then we can achieve a desired result. But I, I think that the, the mayor and others pushed back on that quite rightly uh, pretty hard because that practice also by itself is exclusionary. Right? And, and it suggests that uh, some folks who have political aspirations should continue to wait their turn. And that is a phrase that has kept our politics from being more diverse, even as our uh, demographics have changed. Aaron, all of that is true, Peter said. I do note that the, all the chess pieces in this particular scenario are Black women, so that's interesting. Right. Well, I was mm-hmm. going to say, there's the first thing I was to say is there there are Black women, one of whom I'm talking to, who are uh, oh, much, right. <laughs> much better equipped to answer this question. So first, I should be listening. And it, with that important caveat, because I mean it, is that I think there's a difference between the Taylor email, which was just blunt at best, and I don't mean blunt and straightforward, I just meant blunt and in, in sort of insensitive, versus the idea of coalescing around one candidate. When you look at the support that Janie has right now, 30% of African Americans are with her, right, when there's a lot of undecided. And so I think back on the Charlotte Goller Ritchie um, in 2013, when she placed third and didn't get into the general. And it, it is the case that if some other minority candidates or other candidates, but especially minority candidates like a John Barros had dropped out, Goler Ritchie may have gotten into that, into the general. 
And maybe Marty Walsh is never mayor. And so I think there's there's a difference. This to me is what we want aspirational politics versus the politics we actually have. And so if the race remains this rich with minority candidates, there is a chance of fracturing the vote in ways that ultimately don't lead to the desired outcome of getting uh, a particularly, say, a Black candidate elected. So that's the way I reasoned through it. Um, I thought Janie and Campbell's responses were instructive, that they both were like, no, this is a problem more than two competent black women can run and win. But uh, this is pure conjecture on my part. If I was Kim Janey off the record, I'd be like, yeah, get out. That's just me. Yeah, I hear you. I will note um, that in that 2013 primary race, when Charlotte Golar Ritchie came in third, John Barros was closing fast. Yeah. And so, you know, there you had a situation where if you had picked her, potentially, maybe she wouldn't have been the one and he would have been. Because I don't know if you all recall, there was a lot of discussion afterwards with people saying, you know, I just didn't know who he was and I really wish I had gone with him. People were very impressed with him in that last go-round. So who knows? And again, it comes back to who has the power to make that decision. So there you have it. Rob, what would you say? I'd just say, you know, if only politics were were so simple, every, you know, Democrat candidate who dropped out of the presidential primary after South Carolina would have a cabinet position right now. So if you're Andrea Campbell and you hear this, you know, why on earth would you even consider dropping out of, at this point. I, you're, you're raising money. You're picking up endorsements. I just don't think politics is so neat and tidy that you can shift one person into the mayor's office and like dominoes, the other person will just slide into the Suffolk DA. Well, well, we shall see what happens. This is going to be one to watch, as all of you have said. Now, while we're talking about uh, city council candidates, let me note that there is a huge, huge (laughs) field of at-large candidates. I counted them. So I believe I've counted right that there are 21, 22 if you include Roy Owens Sr., who is also running for District 7. But then I note that there is a Patrick Williams, who's also running for the mayor of Boston, apparently. I did not know that. And Boston City Council District 3. So first, can you, obviously, I guess you can run for two things like that. I didn't think you could, but that seems to make you not as committed, but that's for the voters to decide. But aside from that, like if you even take those two off and it's down to 19 or 20, that's a lot of people running for at large. Um, Now, I know that, Aaron, you've picked one guy to just pay attention to. And so let's talk about him. And then I have all of you just respond to this. Uh, Alex Gray is one of the at large candidates who happens to be blind. And here he is talking about his candidacy for Boston City Council. I really want to be the person that brings uh, disability uh, to the table where decisions are made. And, you know, as, as somebody who's blind, I think I can bring that lived experience. All right. So that's Alex Gray. He's one of potentially 20 or 22 What do you all think about this? You know, uh, uh, the articles I've read about Alex is it's like he stole something that um, my colleagues and I will use in our public policy classes for why you want diversity in in elected uh, officials. He um, stated, if I wasn't there, meaning Alex Gray, if I wasn't there, disability might have been left out of the discussion. That is why you elect people with different experiences. 
And so he's an agenda setter. He's going to make sure that disability is a part of that discussion. Of course, disability isn't all that he is, but you know, bringing that to the fore really differs. And 21 candidates with that many, this is something distinctive. And it's something distinctive that would make people's lives better in Boston. So I think that will help him rise to the top, if you will. But there's other quality candidates in there. You know, Kelly Bates, uh, a lot of us know. Aaron Murphy ran before. So even though there's definitely a top tier and a bottom tier, uh, it also says to me, if name recognition is a problem in the mayoral race, if you're running at large right now, you are, you know, uh, you're bottom of the barrel in terms of name recognition because there's just so much energy in that mayor's race. That is true. Also, um, Peter, I would just note that of that number, two are uh, incumbents, uh, Michael Flaherty and Julia Mejia. So I would assume they have name recognition to to Aaron's point. Yes, uh, they have name recognition. And then they also have what what a successful candidate is going to need uh, in a race like this uh, is a strong uh, field operation. The city council races are traditionally overshadowed by other races on the ballot and, and in a competitive mayoral race, uh, even more so. And so, you know, though, though the field is large, they're not going to have the, the political oxygen to really build up um, significant name recognition citywide. So it's gonna, they're going to be relying on strong precinct captains and, and get out the vote operations. And so it'd be really instructive in a month or so to look one level down and see how well are these candidates actually building out uh, their operation across the city. And doing it for the most part virtually, by the way, because we're still in that space. So, and that was very difficult the last go around. So, I just want to want to add that. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with three of the Mass Politics profs: Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Rob DeLeo of Bentley University, and Peter Upataccio of Stonehill College. We're talking about the latest political news you need to know. Um, let's uh, switch to national. Topics. Uh, Do we have to? Yes, Do we have to. Yes, you have to. <laughs> and you know, the first one's got to be Liz Cheney. She stood by her stated principles and said, I'm not going to support President Trump. And so, with that, all the members of her party kicked her out of her leadership role as um, the third top person in, in the leadership for the Republican Party. And she seemed to be uh, unmoved because she came out of that vote having lost it and said, She's going to keep working to make sure, and this is the quote, that uh, former President Trump never is in the White House again. So, Rob, I'll start with you. What do you make of this? It's a big mistake by Kevin McCarthy and the Republican Party. I think it's a big mistake. There's recent polling that suggests uh, support for Trump may very well be dwindling within the party. Um, Last week, 44% of Republicans say they support Trump compared to 50% that said they support the party uh, more than Trump. Um, This is the first time uh, the party has overshadowed Trump since since 2019. So I think it's very risky for Republicans to hitch their wagon to the Trump train uh, at this moment in history. And I think it's something that Kevin McCarthy and the Republican caucus um, could come to regret. But wow, 70 million people voted for President Trump the last go round. And a lot of those people, we don't know the percentage, agree with him that he won, even though President Biden is sitting in the White House. Hmm. Aaron? 
True. <laughs> you know, and I think my issue on this more is I want to step back and, and talk to the left, the political left in this country. Uh, a lot of the anecdotally memes and other Facebook sort of posts and that kind of thing, again, admittedly anecdotal, is um, those on the left, not all, but those on the left saying, you know, let the GOP eat itself. Who cares? Liz Cheney is no different than Donald Trump or Kevin McCarthy or saying it, it shouldn't have been hard to stand up uh, against the big lie. Why are we rewarding someone for something so easy? And to that, I say, get over yourselves. Uh, I, I really think there is a difference between Liz Cheney and Donald Trump. Liz Cheney believes in democratic institutions. The left can fight like all get out with her on policy because guess what? There is almost no disagreement. As many have pointed out, Liz Cheney voted lock and step with Donald Trump on policy much more than um, the individual who took over her position. But I think the left is making a real mistake by not giving some accolade to Liz Cheney. She can be a problematic figure on policy, but when she's right on this and she's standing up to her party, a two-party system that actually believes in democratic institutions is necessary for the polity to function. And when we deny the courage it took for her to do this and all the problems Rob pointed out of the GOP letting her go or making her go, then I think the left feeds into hyperpolarization. That's just the diatribe I'm on right now. Mm. Peter? Uh, yeah, I don't know how much more I can add. I, I agree that it, it is a mistake. Uh, this whole process has left Kevin McCarthy looking like an incredibly weak and craven figure. Rob is exactly right that the polling, and including the internal polling from the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee, demonstrates that that Trump is be, is becoming problematic in competitive districts. And so the, that their first response to that is to replace Liz Cheney with Elise Stefanik, I, I think demonstrates how uh, under the thumb they are of this this bullying figure, and they put themselves on, on a path, I think, to to regret it. And you know, it's interesting. Liz Cheney, I think, tomorrow is going to be doing an interview on a New Hampshire radio station. Politicians ah. don't go to New Hampshire <laughs> yeah. just to you know see the White Mountains. So um, uh, oh, they, they may have they may have unintentionally boost. She, you know, like Donald Trump. She would only need to win a small percentage of the early primary electorate to find herself on a pathway toward nomination. And since it seems like all the other candidates uh, for the nomination are doing as much as they can to ingratiate themselves with Donald Trump, she may have that particular lane all to herself. What They have not silenced her. They have simply amplified her voice, and I think mm. they will come to regret it. Well. I just want to uh, add one button to that, and that is, um, you know, she's pretty much to the right of Attila the Hun. There's no no doubt about that. <laughs> However, this smacks of sexism, just screaming. I mean, I just cannot imagine they would do this to a man. I just don't, I just do not believe it. I do not believe it. So I think also that's not a good look. Um, they just elected the biggest number, taking a page from the Democratic women who you know, worked with the organizations to get more people in Congress. The Republicans said they took a page to get more Republican women in Congress. And now this is how you're going to treat one? Uh-uh. Coming up, it's more insight and analysis from the Mass Politics Profs. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 
I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our discussion with three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Rob DeLeo of Bentley University, and Peter Ubertaccio of Stonehill College. Let's pick up where we left off, which is talking about national politics. Let me switch to something that is a little bit mind-boggling to me, but I guess not. We have a a, a labor shortage of a sort, as was indicated by the last uh, jobs report that came out, and everybody was expecting a million jobs, and in fact, it you know ended up being two hundred and sixty-six thousand, which is way less than everybody thought it would be, but. The Republicans, uh, almost to a person, are saying, CC, we told you, these are these lazy people sitting at home who don't want to work. So they're taking some drastic action, including uh, three GOP governors and more at this point, probably, um, who are slashing the $600 enhanced benefits, the weekly benefits, to $300 and saying, you know, if you don't get back to work, you know, this is what happens. Let's listen to Jackmont Hospitality CEO Daniel Halpern on the labor shortage at his restaurants. We're approximately understaffed by about 800 employees. Uh, We're constantly trying to staff. It's the number one issue on all our calls with all our general managers, director of operations, COO, myself is, you know, how do we get people to come back? Now, I want to be clear, there are some openings, but there are plenty of other issues, including the fact that a lot of the original workers at these places have moved or gotten out of the business. But I just want to say it's just interesting that, you know, let's uh, demonize the people on unemployment, it seems to me. Peter? Well, there are a couple of problems here that you, you pointed out. One is the demonization of people, right? So I think that that there is a way to have an adult conversation about uh, labor shortages and the impact of unemployment benefits on it without, without demonizing people uh, who are trying to do the best in the midst of an ongoing pandemic and uh, consequent economic turmoil. There's some politicians who just reflexively want to assume that certain people who receive public benefits are lazy simply by virtue of receiving them. And what they really mean by that is people receive unemployment benefits because they they wouldn't suggest the same about uh, all kinds of middle class entitlements that are that are dispensed to people. Um, on the other hand, uh, as as someone with family members who have run and run restaurants, I can tell you, this is a real dilemma. These are low margin uh, operations, and lots of of restaurants in particular, just speaking of that particular industry, have had to put up with a lot of losses and then expenditures they haven't anticipated, you know, to say, create outdoor seating uh, when when they might not have had it before and all the costs that are associated with that. And uh, they're low margin to begin with. And so trying to find the balance is a real problem. I I suspect if this can't be addressed soon, we're, we're gonna see more businesses in that field close because they simply can't find the workers. Mm. Rob? Yeah, I mean, you know, so I think any, Economist in the country will tell us that it's it's unwise to extrapolate too much from a, a single jobs report, uh, especially one that occurs against the backdrop of months of data that are that are signaling the possibility of a post-pandemic boom. But politics isn't necessarily about doing the thing that's wise from sort of a normative perspective. And so in that respect, I think that the, the Republicans see this job report as a gift. The narrative that Biden's spending is dissuading people from looking for jobs and overheating the economy is a very simplistic one that 
those simplistic arguments tend to resonate with people and stick in their mind. And I think President Biden's in a, in a challenging position because he's, he's really trying to thread a needle here by convincing people that his interventions are, are working and making the country better, while also selling them on uh, uh, new initiatives that would result in greater government spending and bigger government. So it's a challenging dynamic, I think, for, for the president. And in some respects, I think for uh, the Republicans and Mitch McConnell in particular, you know, this jobs report is a gift. Hmm. Aaron? First, I should say this is nothing new. This is straight out of Regulating the Poor, a book by Piven and Cloward from the 70s. But what they find is that the, the welfare functions of employment benefits are secondary. That welfare is first a supportive institution. It, it prevents social protests. So you give just enough so people aren't in the streets. You give just enough so the institutions don't collapse during a time of crisis. COVID is obviously an intense crisis. But then you always set those benefit levels below what the lowest paying job would offer so that um, it enforces work norms. And so when I see this, this is what uh, the United States has done since the progressive era. And so uh, I just see this as uh, another and a long page of enforcing work norms at the lowest rate. Mm. So uh, what's in this infrastructure proposal of President Biden's Rob DeLeo that you think is something we must be paying attention to? Climate change. Climate change is in the infrastructure plan, and it's 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 fascinating um, because we've always sort of talked about climate change policy as something that can result in job growth, but politicians have struggled to package it in a way that really resonates with sort of the mean voter in this country, the average voter of this country. Now we're seeing someone really test that narrative in legislation that, if passed in some iteration, could result in some serious pork barrel spending at a district level. You know, this would be one of the biggest federal efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, the, the provisions that are most striking to me are the 170 plus billion dollars for electric cars, another 100 billion to upgrade the electricity grid. So I think that although this is, you know, being sold as an infrastructure plan, which, you know, it, it is, the thing that's most interesting from a, a progressive perspective, from an environmental perspective, um, is the way climate change is getting rolled into this uh, package. So Rob just hit on something that the Republicans are very unhappy about, Peter, and that is they feel that there's stuff in this, quote, unquote, infrastructure proposal that's not infrastructure or not what they typically think of infrastructure in terms of bridges and repairing roads. Would you agree that climate change is as important a policy as Rob has said and that it is infrastructure for this moment in time? I agree, certainly with what Rob has said about the way, uh, and I'm not surprised at all, given what I know Rob's scholarship and work to be on, that that, that, that would be his answer. And he's quite, he's quite right. Um, but I disagree with the sense that these things are not infrastructure. Uh, they are. And the infrastructure is, is more, it has always been more than bridges you know, and roads. And that has been helpful for politicians to define it narrowly 
And uh, what Biden is doing, I think, is simply reflecting the reality that there are other resources that count as as infrastructure. And so when you see what, what he's planning to do with our water infrastructure, right, $100 billion to upgrade the nation's water supply, which in part, but not exclusively due to climate change, is a really important part of our, our future. Digital infrastructure, we have seen the equity issues uh, with the lack of broadband in, in certain parts of the country over the past 15 months, especially. Uh, but things like workforce development and um, retrofitting buildings and you know the kind of research and development uh, that he wants and uh, home care workers and that that is such an important part uh, because it's it's a personnel resource that is part of our infrastructure as a growing economy. And so I think he, despite the Republican complaints, he has really tapped into something that most Americans who are paying attention to this kind of intuitively understand that infrastructure has always been more than you know laying asphalt uh, to build a road. And, and he is, I think surprisingly to me, uh, I didn't think he had it in him to be perfectly frank. Uh, he's been able to redefine it in a way and people are responding to it. The, the public approval for this plan is very high and uh, Republicans are gonna have a hard time opposing it. Well, that was my question to you, Aaron. Do you think that the Republicans, some of whom have already stated, some who are in the meeting with President Biden as he's trying to strike a bipartisanship take on this, because it's something, as you all have said, everybody wants, but will they win the narrative uh, as they've returned to a certain kind of narrative with regard to slashing the benefits, as we just discussed? So will they win the narrative of, hey, when we say infrastructure, which we're all for, if it's a bridge or a road, go for it. But if it's all this other stuff, that is not infrastructure. No, they won't win the argument. Now, the you know 42% of their base that's with them, they will stay. They're not going anywhere on this. But I mean, the Republican argument is basically, let's do it like we always did. And all those things are failing, right? Like, you know, uh, uh, there's there's this drastic need. We just came out of a pandemic where nursing homes were uh, uh, amongst the highest death rates and such loss. Care work is just as essential as, you know, roads and bridges. And so what Biden's doing is he's trying to change the way we operationalize infrastructure. And that makes a lot of sense to a lot of people, housing, manufacturing, care work. Um, I, I actually wish the child care portions were in this bill, not, you know, round two, but um, th that's nibbling around the edges and listening to you and my colleagues, it also made me think about just how gendered that definition is. You guys brought that to the fore. You made me connect the dots of how what it, infrastructure is you know, roads and bridges and asphalt and all that. Like, that's the way we've talked about that. That's typically not always, of course, male work. That's right. And the fact that they're doing pushback on care work or environmental issues as that there's an embedded assumption that that's soft and that's not essential and it's not necessary. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Joining me are three members of the Mass Politics Profs, Aaron O'Brien of UMass Boston, Rob DeLeo of Bentley University, and Peter Ubitaccio of Stonehill College. We're discussing the latest local and national political stories you need to know. I want to uh, end on what I many people will take as good news. Uh, the feds finally gave final approval to Vineyard Wind. As you all know, this has been going on and on and on. And the reason it's in this discussion is because it has been so political. 
there was some indication even before President Biden got into office when this project was, we can say, almost dead. It might have even been dead that there was going to be a possibility of revival. And then here we are. They passed on it and uh, a lot of people are celebrating. I'll just note that uh, a quote from a piece that we did here at GBH News is from Senator Mark Pacheco. He posted on Twitter that it was phenomenal news and it is fitting that the construction will begin after Labor Day because this announcement will mean thousands of good paying jobs. So, Peter, your response. I think the opposition to this is going to be from folks whose vistas will change. And uh, those are some deep-pocketed individuals. And this has happened before, right? So folks who have waterfront property and it's beautiful, they don't want windmills. Uh, They don't want to see something industrial. And uh, while I think there is a good case to be made for uh, the importance of natural beauty, uh, the only way to fully harness uh, renewable energy is to change vistas, right? It's to suggest that maybe historical districts should allow solar panels on homes and that beautiful oceanfront properties may have to occasionally look at windmills. Uh, there's, there's just no way to meet the demands of energy in the future without fully harnessing these sources. Rob? I think we should also expect more offshore wind. This is a big development, uh, but a development that actually dovetails Speaker Mariano's current agenda. Uh, He recently indicated that he intends to put $10 million in the upcoming budget to prioritize job training programs to prepare workers for offshore wind farm construction. He really sees this as something that Southeastern Mass should be a, a leader in. So I think that there's an emerging push to really harness and foster this industry within the state. And I don't think it's going away anytime soon. So those people that are worried about their vistas, they they may want to look for a new spot. I do have one last question for you, Ellen. That is, back locally now, what do you think the impact, the verdict of Jaisal Correa's will have on, there's a lot of people running for mayor, um, some longtime names that we have become familiar with, have stepped down. I'm thinking about Joe Curtitone and many other people across the state. And I, I just wonder if there's something to be said about leadership and how voters view leadership looking through the lens of that trial. Well, I think I do to a point, Callie, but I, uh, my, my takeaway from the a verdict in this trial and the, just the, the evidence that was presented is my fear is that it won't have as much of an impact as we might like because what he did was so outrageous. If it was just a little less outrageous, would we have ever heard of it? And uh, so I, I've been thinking this through the lens of the, the demise of local journalism and the fact that it's uh, in places like Fall River and, and other smaller municipalities, there are no longer, you know, beat reporters and journalists who are actively covering uh, the affairs of those cities. And so I think that for, for people who tend toward corruption, and those folks are still out there, uh, their lesson is going to be, you know, just just don't be don't go after it as crazy as as that particular mayor did. Just kind of bring it bring it down a little bit. Um, and your chances of getting away with it are pretty high. Mm. Rob? Yeah, I would echo everything Peter said. I think it was just such an extreme example. I don't know that there's going to be this sort of uh, informed period of of reflection and, and lesson learning for current mayoral candidates. And I think that, uh, unfortunately, the term 
leadership right now or over the last year has been sort of soiled in general. So I think that the bar or the perceived bar is, is, is relatively low. And I don't know that this helps raise it in any meaningful way. Well, the reason I ask is because I was so shocked that when the first hint of some of the misbehavior came to light, a lot of people were like, eh, you know, it's not a big deal. He's a young guy. He'll learn. I'm like, what are you talking about? So I, I just think that voters are in a different space now. But Aaron, I'm, I guess I'm wrong. Well, I'm going to do something you should never do on a show. <laughs> okay. I had to Google it real quick. <laughs> okay. and I, that is embarrassing, but it is also accurate. And I am, uh, you know, that that's because I was like, oh, wait, I think I know about this. And so I, I do Massachusetts politics. I'm a political scientist. I am smart. I swear, listeners. Uh, And I do pay a lot of attention. And I forgot about this. It took me a second. And uh, I think given that this is my job and my passion, that says to me, generalizing from myself poorly, (laughs) uh, I just don't think it's going to have much of an impact at all. All right. Well, then I like to end a show with some predictions that I can hold up in your face later if they don't turn out to be true. So let's do a round robin on who do you think is going to run for governor? Give me a couple names. Don't try to duck, Rob DeLeo. Who do you think? (laughs) Uh, I'm happy to go first. That's an easy one. I think Maura Healy. She's got close to $3 million in her campaign war chest. I think Maura Healy will run for governor. Other than her, um, I think Governor Baker will run for re-election. He'll seek a third term. Okay. All right, Peter Ubertaccio. Yeah, I'll, I, I'll stay on the Republican side. I think I agree Charlie Baker will run for a third term, and I think he will be challenged by uh, Jeff Deal, who will not win, but will use it as an opportunity to kind of highlight the fissures within the Republican Party. But I, 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 I'm not as convinced as my colleague Rob DeLeo is on, uh, on Maura Healy. Uh, I, I, I think she really likes her job. And uh, there's a curse that follows attorneys general when they try to move up. Mm. Um, if she does not end up going to Washington in any capacity over the next uh, few months, uh, then I think it's possible. But I, I, I would, I, at this point, I'm not going to suggest her as a candidate. Well, you know, it's nothing stopping you from going to Washington and coming back and running. <laughs> you know, just saying. True, that's true. Yes. And and folks have done that. All right, Erin O'Brien, big prediction. I can see um, State Senator Sonia Chang Diaz. Um, she's, and I'm not the first to say that, but she has been uh, astute and properly ruthless towards Charlie Baker when it comes to the inequities of the vaccine rollout. And yes, the overall numbers look pretty good right now, but there are deep racial inequities in who's been vaccinated. Um, and so she's carved a lane out. Um, I do think it's interesting that Ben Dowling's in uh, to see someone from Western Mass. That interests me, but I could see her getting in because she's got a specific policy issue that the governor is very weak on. And you know what Peter just said about Jeff Deal, if Jeff Deal could weaken Baker amongst Republicans, which of course some yeah. Democrats really like, <laughs> um, but you know it, it, it's an uphill battle to beat Charlie Baker, but I can see a lane for her that makes a lot of sense. And COVID is obviously at the forefront of everyone's brains and it's not gonna be something that, this isn't gonna be a policy issue that we sort of, oh, remember two years ago when we had that issue? No, the COVID issue is going to stay. So, and we're just gonna find out more data in Massachusetts. So she's someone uh, I would keep my eye on. 
And I would add that I think that there will be a lot of fresh faces as opposed to it, maybe with the exception on the Republican side of a Jeff Deal who is likely to to run. But on the Democratic side, some of the names that you might have thought you'd see, those people have already said, I'm not doing it. Right. And we talk about the political logjam of talent in Massachusetts all the time. But it's like, well, then go against Charlie Baker. <laughs> you know, This is a blue state. You know, all the uh, individuals who are disappointed that uh, Elizabeth Warren will be running again simply because it means they can't run for her Senate seat. In many other states, that would mm. mean they look to the governor. Um, but uh, the top tier talent, and that's evaluative, and but there I mean money and name recognition, the top tier talent is um, waiting to replace a Democrat than challenge Baker. Well, I have some good fodder for a great little montage once we know what really happened. <laughs> that I'll play. I'll be happy to play back for you all. <laughs> so I guess um, I just have enough time to announce that Peter, this is your swan song with Mass Politics Profs because you're moving on out of Massachusetts politics and on to something else. Congratulations to you, but we're certainly going to miss you. Well, thank you, Kelly. I will be at uh, Caldwell University. Uh, starting next month, and uh, we'll miss we'll miss all of my interactions with my colleagues here in Massachusetts. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, thank you. Kelly. Aaron O'Brien is an associate professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Boston. Rob DeLeo is an associate professor of public policy at Bentley University. And for the last time, Peter Upatacio is the founding dean of the Thomas and Donna May School of Arts and Sciences and an Associate Professor of Political Science at Stonehill College. You can read more of their analysis on their blog, masspoliticsprofs.org. Well, that's it for this week's show. We're on the web at wgbh.org, news under the radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH. Produced by Hannah Ubeli and Angela Yang and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.